Well, we're going to take our Bibles and turn to the Psalms now. We're turning to Psalm 46 this morning. You'll find Psalm 46 on pages 471 over into page 472 of the Pew Bibles. Over the next two Sundays, we're going to be thinking about a couple of very well-known Psalms. And Psalm 46 is the first Psalm that we're looking at together. So Psalm 46, pages 471 over into 472 of the Blue Pew Bibles. You'll see that the title of the Psalm is God is Our Fortress. And then there's a little subtitle which says, To the choirmaster of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So that's what we're reading, a, a song written by the sons of Korah. Psalm 46, and this is God's word to us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, at this point in our service, let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 46. Uh, we're going to think about this psalm together for a few moments this morning. Uh, you'll find it on pages uh, 471 over into 472 of the Pew Bibles. And it'll be really helpful for you to have it open in front of you as you're turning it up. And before we look at it together, let's just pray for a moment. As we come to you this, this morning, we come thanking you that all of our ways are known to you. All that has happened in this past week to us is known by you. All of the things that are running through our minds are known by you. But we pray that as we come to your word now, we pray that you would help us to be still. To be still and to focus on you and to focus on your holy word. Father, we pray that you'd speak to all of us, that you'd challenge us, that you'd comfort us, and that you'd do us good as we study your word together. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you do if you became sick with a bacterial infection like tetanus, tuberculosis, or strep throat? Step one is obviously phone the doctor. 
But what would the doctor give you? The medics among us this morning already know the answer, but the doctor would give you a course of antibiotics. But what if there was no miracle drug available? No medicine for the doctor to prescribe? Well, that was the situation up until around 80 years ago when the first antibiotic, penicillin, began to be mass-produced. The impact of penicillin has been almost incalculable, and the drug is credited with saving an estimated 200 million lives. It acts by destroying the cell walls of bacteria, and it's a really strong antibiotic when dealing with infection. The story of how penicillin was discovered is an interesting one. The British bacteriologist Alexander Fleming is said to have discovered the antibiotic qualities of penicillin by accident in 1928. Apparently, Fleming left a Petri dish smeared with bacteria in his laboratory while he was away on a two-week holiday. The Petri dish grew a fungus that killed the bacteria around it, and Fleming identified and isolated the effective component, but he had difficulty in mass-producing penicillin. That, that was left to others, and by the early 1940s, penicillin was widely available. The, the, the discovery and production of the life-saving medicine was also a significant factor in the Allies' victory in the Second World War. By 1944, the Allies had enough penicillin to treat soldiers with infected battlefield injuries and return them to the front line. A lot has changed in, in 80 years, and we now live in a world that is dependent on medicine. N nearly 70% of people in the United Kingdom have received prescriptions for one or more medication. The BBC recently reported that 8.3 million adults in, in the United Kingdom are taking antidepressants. We need medicine for, for all sorts of ailments and complaints. We rely on medicine to, to help us get better. But yet we all have heart trouble. Not heart trouble in the physical sense, heart trouble in the spiritual sense. In Scripture, the, the, the word heart is used more than a thousand times, but it almost never refers to the physical organ inside our chests. The theological word book of the Old Testament gives us a very helpful definition of the Bible's use of the word heart. It says it is the richest, most all-encompassing biblical term for the totality of a man's inner nature. We say this a lot in church but the heart is the control center. It's, it's our steering wheel. It's, it's the thing that directs our lives. But it doesn't function properly or, or, or function in the way that it was meant to. It's broken. It's sick, desperately so. And that means that the cries of the human heart don't really change from one generation to the next. And that's where the Psalms come in. One of the best and most beautiful descriptions of the Psalm, Psalms is this. that They have been called the soul's medicine chest. For, for those of us who are spiritually sick, which is all of us by nature, the Psalms come to us and give us a dose of spiritual penicillin. That, that spiritual penicillin comes through petition, praise, lament, and song. It comes through numerous writers articulating what it's like to live in a fallen world, but, but, but also by giving us eternal truths about the character of God. The Psalms are a source of encouragement and hope, and they also provide us with an impetuous, a, a reason for worship and prayer. This morning, we're, we're going to identify and isolate the spiritual penicillin we find in Psalm 46. And what I hope we'll find 
is that it's good for our souls. We're, we're turning to Psalm 46 this morning. Our preaching series uh, over the past few months has been very irregular. Uh, we started Exodus in September, but only got as far as chapter 4. Uh, with just a couple of weeks to go before we think about the story of Christmas, uh, I thought it would be better for us to wait until the new year before going back to Exodus. So what we're going to do today and next Sunday is look at two famous Psalms. Today we're going to look at Psalm 46, and next Sunday we're going to look at Psalm 139. Psalm 46 is, is treasured by many of us, but what's the big point of it? What's the take-home, not-to-be-forgotten truth? Well, we might put it like this. Psalm 46 tells us not to be afraid, but to put our confidence in God. Psalm 46 tells us not to be afraid, but to put our confidence in God. Our three points this morning are going to help us think, think that take-home truth through. Here's what we're going to see as we break this psalm down. We're going to see that we're not to be afraid, even though everything is changing. That we're not to be afraid, even though the church looks weak. And that we're not to be afraid, even though evil seems to be winning. Let's think about our first point together. Don't be afraid, even though everything is changing. Let's read verses 1 to 3 of this famous psalm again. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. As you can see, Psalm 46 begins by telling us who God is. The, the, the emphasis of, uh, of verses 1 to 3 is on God himself. And he alone is our refuge. He, he and no other. Nothing in the universe can be a comparable refuge for us. Some people think that they'll be secure if they have enough money. They keep it in bank accounts and stocks and so on. Yet it can't protect us from judgment. It can't shield us from heartbreak, from failure, from sin, disease or disaster in this world. Other people think they'll be secure because of their specialized training, their, their, their skills or their, their, their personal talents. But even the best educated and highly skilled people experience things they can't deal with. And others expect to find security from their families or friends or business connections. But, but, but all of these things are only human supports. They're uncertain at the best of times and they can be suddenly swept away. In verse 1, the psalmist looks to God for two kinds of help, refuge and strength. Now, refuge and strength don't mean, mean the same thing. So verse 1 tells us that God is a stronghold, he's a refuge into which we can flee. And it also tells us that he is a source of inner strength by which we can face calamities. So sometimes God shields us from what's going on around us. In times like that, he is our fortress. At other times, we do suffer. And then we find God to be our help. We're able to say, God is my strength, a very present help in trouble. He's our help even if the worst imaginable calamities should come upon us. But that, that's what verses 2 and 3 indicate. The, the writer imagines the, the return of chaos in which the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. It's a reversal of the work of God on the third day of creation. Now, until recently, no one imagined the possibility of the world itself being destroyed or, or swept away. But today, our films are, are filled with ways it could happen. 
Some of you might remember watching films like, like Armageddon or The Day After Tomorrow. What Psalm 46 is saying is that even if something like what's depicted in those films happened, if you have this God as your God, you can face whatever comes. In verses 7 and 11, there's a repeated refrain. It says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Some people think that this refrain would have been sung after verse 3 as well. Why would that be helpful or, or why would that make sense? Well, God says that he is the God of Jacob, and that's interesting. The Bible gives us no indication that Jacob ever, in all his 147 years, experienced or lived through a flood or an earthquake. But in Genesis, we read of a man who went through crises and dramas, deceptions and feuds, and rebellions and heartache. His life roared and foamed. One person has said that if you were to condense Jacob's life into 147 half-hour episodes, you would have an award-winning soap opera. That's what makes it interesting that God is the God of Jacob. He's the God of people whose lives roar and foam. He's the God of, of people who have the foundations of their lives shaken. He's the God of people who experience chaos. Elizabeth Elliot was one such person. She was married to the now famous missionary Jim Elliot. He went to Ecuador to reach the Aka Indians with the gospel, but was killed as soon as he went ashore. As soon as he got off the boat onto the beach, he was killed by the natives. Elizabeth Elliot married again, but her second husband, Addison Leach, was slowly consumed by cancer. She once spoke of what it was like to go through what she went through, the death of not one but two of her husbands. In retelling her story, she referred to Psalm 46, and she said this, Everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. In other words, don't be afraid, even though everything is changing. Don't be afraid when it feels like your world is disintegrating around you. Don't be afraid when the mountains of your life are falling into the sea. So some some of us here this morning are experiencing change. Change for the worse, change in our personal circumstances, change in our careers, change in our health or the health of a loved one. Psalm 46 says, don't be afraid even though everything is changing. God is a a refuge, a a stronghold into which we can flee. And he's a source of inner strength by which we can face calamities. That's good spiritual penicillin, isn't it? That's a a not-to-be-forgotten truth as we begin a new week with the same issues of last week in our entree. Psalm 46, first of all, tells us, don't be afraid even though everything is changing. The, The second thing it tells us is, Don't be afraid even though the church looks weak. Don't be afraid even though everything is changing. And don't be afraid even though the church looks weak. Let's read verses 4 to 7 again. We're told there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. 
the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The natural disasters of verses 1 to 3 and the upheavals spoken of later in verses 7 to 11 are illustrations of a particular event on which this psalm is based. So something happened during the history of God's people that made somebody write this psalm. The, the main details of what happened are clear yet vague. The city of God, Jerusalem, was threatened but didn't fall. Now, something like that happened during the reigns of Jehoshaphat, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The Hezekiah option is probably the strongest. During his reign, Assyria invaded Israel and reached the walls of Jerusalem but didn't get any further. But we can't be sure which of it is, and it doesn't really matter. Well, what the turmoils of verses 1 to 3 illustrate is any threat to the city of God. The collapse of mountains and the uproar of the waters re represent the uproar of nations and the collapse of kingdoms. God is in as much control there in the world of international politics as he is everywhere else. Now, what's the point for us? Well, it comes by understanding what the city of God is from a New Testament perspective. From New Testament times on, the city of, of God is described as the heavenly Jerusalem. The spiritual reality described in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, the Mount Zion where, where Revelation 14, 1 pictures the lamb and his 144,000 followers. From, from a New Testament perspective, the city of God is the church. In Psalm 46, we see the church threatened by an earthquake and persecution here and there by a flood of materialism. Well, what, what confidence does the church have of surviving these troubles? It looks so weak, it looks so downtrodden, so pathetic. Well, three pictures in verses four to seven reassure the city of God, the church of all generations. In verse four, there's a mention of streams. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The only literal streams available to Jerusalem were those just outside its east wall. Hezekiah eventually tunneled under the city and brought running water in. And since then, Jerusalem has never lacked a natural water supply. So streams and the siege which took place during Hezekiah's reign ended when morning dawned, verse 5. That's the second picture, streams and then the break of dawn. Hezekiah and his people woke at daybreak to find the Assyrians retreating. And the third picture comes as we're pointed back to creation itself. He utters his voice, the earth melts. God speaks and it happens. What he has made, he can unmake. Three pictures that reassure the city of God, the church. God's unfailing grace, the streams, the promise of a new day, daybreak, and the certain doom of every evil power. God speaks and it happens. Don't be afraid even though the church looks weak. Don't be afraid when, when people make fun of you for following Jesus. Don't be afraid when people marginalize you, push you to the side for following Jesus. Don't be afraid when you read st statistics about the decline of the church. Don't be afraid when you hear pundits and personalities declaring that the church is irrelevant. Don't be afraid even though the church looks weak. God provides unfailing grace and he promises a new day. One of my favorite hymns is the church's one foundation. Listen to one of the verses. 
mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she, the church, waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. The church that faces toil and tribulation now will be the church at rest in eternity. Psalm 46 has long been considered Luther's psalm. That's Martin Luther of Reformation fame. He he wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is based on Psalm 46. It's said of Luther that there were times during the dark and dangerous periods of the Reformation when he was terribly discouraged and depressed. It's said that at times like that, he would turn to his friend and colleague, Philip Melanchthon, and say, Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm. Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm. Luther said, we sing this Psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against, against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. So don't be afraid, even though the church looks weak. That's what Psalm 46 tells us. That's more good spiritual penicillin, isn't it? That's another not-to-be-forgotten truth. Don't be afraid, even though everything is changing. Don't be afraid, even though the church looks weak. And don't be afraid, even though evil seems to be winning. That's our third and final point. Don't be afraid, even though evil seems to be winning. Let's read the final few verses of this psalm, verses 8 to 11. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This part of the psalm is looking forward to the future, to when God will defeat all armies and establish his eternal reign. Uh, This section is very similar to Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, in which God mocks those who take arms against him and his anointed In verse 9 it says, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. That's not presenting God as a peace negotiator, but a conqueror. In other words, this is not a brokered peace like the Good Friday Agreement. This is more like a bombardment by which peace is established by imposing it on the conquered party. Here's a story that might help us understand that better. It comes from the days of the Roman Empire. A Roman medal was struck by Vespasian, after completing his wars in Italy and other places, it showed the goddess of peace holding an olive branch in one hand and a torch setting fire to heaps of armour in the other. The olive branch represents a negotiated peace. The torch and destroyed armour represent an imposed peace. Both are peace, but it's the second that's being presented in Psalm 46. That means that that be still and know that I am God means, means lay down your arms. Surrender and acknowledge that I am the one and only victorious God. 
The, the time to do that is now, of course. A desirable peace is available through Jesus. His, his cross is, is the olive branch, if you like, from God to us so that we might know him. But if you don't surrender now, one day you will. And it will be for judgment rather than for blessing. For, for those of us who know and love Jesus, the, the message is don't be afraid even though evil seems to be winning. One day the wrongs of this world will be righted. One day evil will receive its just reward. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even more good spiritual penicillin for our souls. Psalm 46 provides us with, with encouragement and hope. It gives us a reason for worship and prayer. We've identified and, and isolated the spiritual penicillin and we find that Psalm 46 says, don't be afraid, even though everything is changing. Whatever you're going through at the moment, know that God is your refuge. You can run to him. And he is your strength. He is your source of, of inner strength. Don't be afraid, even though the church looks weak. People will make fun of you and marginalize you because you follow Jesus. But come, let's read the 46th Psalm. Don't be afraid even though the church looks weak. And don't be afraid even though evil seems to be winning. Those who rebel against God will have their fun now, but they'll have their day in court then. One day, all the wrongs will be righted. It's a great psalm, this. One of my favorites, one of the best in my opinion. It's a favorite for many of us. And hopefully we've seen it in a fresh light and in a fresh way today. There are a few things that we need to tidy up and mention before we finish. The first is the word selah. You might have noticed it in the reading. We haven't mentioned it so far. Well, what does it mean? What's its, what's its significance? Well, selah is probably a musical instruction. On our music scores, we have Italian words, allegro and lento and forte and so on. Selah probably indicated a pause in the music or a pause for contemplation. Uh, you'll notice that the word is used three times at the end of verse 3, the end of verse 7, and the end of verse 11. Th that's the way we've broken the psalm up, by the way. But it's broken up in that way to help us pause and reflect on who God is. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of Jacob. That should make us stop. Connected to that, the command of verse 10 is very striking. Be still and know that I am God. Do you notice how it's a command? It's not a suggestion. You should maybe be still and think about how I am God. It's not advice either. You should really think about how I'm God for, for a little while and, and be still for a moment. It's a command. Be still. And know that I am God. But being still. We're not very good at that are we? We're, we're the opposite of still. We, we buzz around and, and never stop. We're busy. We're always on the go. We're, we're, we're always filling out our lives with something. Whether it's the, the, the monotony of, of scrolling down a news feed. Or, or working extra hours. Or, or wherever it might be. We're busy, we're, we're very rarely still. We very rarely stop and consider who God is. 
But he calls us to be still in a world that never stops. For those of us who know and follow him, that this psalm is a call to stop for a moment and reevaluate what we're living for. It's a call to stop and to take some spiritual medicine so that our confidence is in God. The command to be still also applies to those of us here today who don't know the Lord, to those of, those of you who, who aren't trusting in the Lord. It's very simple. In this psalm, the Lord says, be, be still, stop, and know that I am God, the God who has made all things, the God who rules all things, the God who rules over all kingdoms, the God who is sovereign, the God of eternity, the God of justice, the God who will not tolerate sin in his presence, the God who will rule one day in a new creation when morning dawns, the God who has sent Jesus to rescue those who have rebelled, the God who holds out an olive branch to those who don't deserve it, the God who provides life-giving spiritual penicillin to those who are spiritually dead. Be still and know that I am that God. Here's a challenge for you if you're not trusting in Jesus. Stop and think about all of this. But be still sometime today, sometime this week, and just think about all of this. God, the Bible, Jesus, the cross, eternity. Be still and think about spiritual things. Think about what you would lose by rejecting the God of Psalm 46. Think about what you would gain by trusting in the God of Psalm 46. What would you lose? It's very simple. If you don't trust the Lord in this life, you won't have the opportunity to do so in the next. What would you gain? Well, that's simple as well. If you trust in Jesus, the Lord of hosts is with you and will be forever. And if God is with you, even the worst thing that happens to you, death, only makes you infinitely happier and greater. So you need to stop if you're not trusting in Jesus. And you need to think about trusting in him. Jesus is actually the embodiment of this psalm. One of the things that we say about Jesus around Christmas time is that he is Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, Jesus is our present refuge and future victory. Our present refuge because his death on the cross deals with our sin. Our future victory because his, by his death and resurrection, we are allowed into God's heaven. Be, be still and know that I am God. It's not a suggestion. It's not advice. It's a command. It's a command to stop and take the spiritual penicillin so graciously offered to us. To take the Lord's spiritual medicine again, because even though we think otherwise, we really can't do without it. And to take it for the first time, so that we might know deep in our hearts that our sin is dealt with, and that the Lord of hosts is with us. Let's pray together.
Father, how we need your word, how we need its spiritual penicillin. And we thank you for what we've seen and heard this morning. We thank you that Psalm 46 tells us not to be afraid even though everything is changing. Some of us are facing really hard things at the moment. Help us to know that you are our refuge and strength. Some of us are being marginalized and and treated badly because we love you and follow you and, and want to honor you. Help us not to be afraid, even though the church, even though believers look and feel weak. Help us to read and reflect upon the 46th Psalm. And help us not to be afraid, even though evil seems to be winning, even though the bad guys are getting their way. Help us to remember that you're the God of justice and will one day right all the wrongs of this world. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has come so that we might know him as our present refuge and our future strength. We pray that we would run to him, that we would trust in him. We pray for those who don't yet know the Savior, that they would reach out and accept the olive branch offered by the cross. Help them to take the spiritual penicillin that is the only thing that can revive their dead souls. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless it to all of our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.